Thanks, Karen. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. It's a challenging word. It's a story that many of us might have heard, and yet it's a true story. And so we pray that as we encounter this word in a fresh way this morning, that you would use this teaching, use these characters, use this narrative to shape us and to mold us. If we're coming in this morning in one direction and we need to go in a different direction, may it be so and may it be through uh, the intentional focus you give in your word. May the words of my mouth and the things that each of us consider in our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Welcome, everybody. Again, it's good to see all of you. Today, we're continuing in our sermon series on Shalom. And Shalom, like we've been talking about the last couple weeks, you'll see it translated in the Bible as the word peace. But that's a very like surface level translation. What Shalom really means is wholeness. It's when someone or something is restored to the way that God meant it to be. Shalom is a blessing and a greeting. You still hear this today in the Middle East. Shalom. It's a way to say hello to someone, but it's longing for a wholeness and a completion that only God can provide. So the image that we've come back to a couple of times, and I just, I think it's helpful and I've heard from you that it's helpful is like a brick wall, just envision like in front of your house or, or, you know, somewhere where you're at a park and there's a brick wall in front of you and there's pieces missing from the wall. There's bricks that have fallen out. There's part of the mortar that, you know, is sort of crumbling. Shalom is when God, through his presence and his power, gives people the ability to kind of put the pieces back together in the wall, make it whole again. Now, as we've been going through this series, I'm just imagining that for some, I I don't think this is true for everybody, for some, the idea of shalom sounds nice, but what does it mean to even apply that or long for that in your life? So, You might be in a situation like many people are that I know that I know are part of our church during the pandemic where you got a paycheck and your kids, maybe they're not in school right now, but they're doing okay. Uh, You haven't had to confront a lot of these real serious challenges that are happening in our society and in our world. Uh, Maybe it's been kind of a good season. And if so, that's all fine and good. And if you're in that space, maybe you're thinking like, why? Like, why is shalom relevant to me? Like, why, why seek this out? Where might I be not experiencing shalom? And the text today, and then the focus of our sermon today, attempts to answer that question through the lens of one word, family. Your family. The family you grew up with. In family systems theory, it's called the family of origin. If you're wondering where you might need shalom in your life, look no further than your family. Now, I I would just offer this as a way to get our brains going at the beginning of of our time together. If you want to type into the chat the family of origin that you grew up in, not, you know, details, but just, hey, I grew up with my mom and my dad, and then I had two brothers and a sister. Just to kind of like put into the chat where you're coming from. How are you entering into this story? The family that you grew up in, if you can just kind of picture those people in your heart and in your mind for a little bit. So I'm picturing my mom who's in Houston. I'm picturing my dad, who has gone home to be with the Lord, and I'm picturing my two brothers, James, who's closest to me in age, Chris, who's in the middle, and my sister Elizabeth, the youngest. And I'm just thankful for them. I'm thankful for the family that I grew up in. And I recognize, and I think we can all recognize this, that the families that we grew up in were far from perfect. If you tell me that you came from a perfect family, I'd want to sit down with you and really dig into that, because I don't think that exists. Today's text is about a family that really is the first family 
in all creation. And it's the story of how things that have tripped up other families continue to trip them up down the road. In other words, the Bible talks about this sort of like passage of of sinfulness and brokenness. It doesn't just land in one corner of your family and kind of stays isolated. It spreads out. It's picked up by the next generation and carried forward. So we're going to look at that in the text today. And the text ends with a glimpse of Shalom. We will come to Shalom by the end of the text. And so as you think about your families, you think about where you grew up, the challenges in your relationships in your family, know that there will be a glimpse of Shalom for you at the end of this time together. So we're going to kind of go through uh, four different parts of the outline today. First part is the backstory of this family. The second uh, heading is a coaching conversation. The third is the the tragedy. And the fourth is a glimpse of Shalom. Backstory coaching conversation, tragedy, glimpse of shalom. So what's the backstory here? In order to understand Genesis 4, we have to spend some time with Genesis 3. And that's the story of Adam and Eve, the first human beings created by God. So we can, you know, probably all have a fair degree of familiarity with this. God creates all of creation. And then kind of the pinnacle of creation is humankind. This man and this woman who are joined together forever. And they're not just joined together forever. They are joined in union and fellowship with God. That's one of the great tragedies of the witness of the Bible is that when things launched in creation, things were meant to be perfect. There was meant to be this harmony between Adam and Eve, between their family, the generations that were yet to come, and God. They were meant to live together in community. God was going to be like their neighbor, like someone that they shared life with. They were going to walk together in perfect harmony. And what happened is human beings said, thanks, I want to do it my way. And they went off and made a solo album. They broke up the band. And then God looked at them and said, look, we can't live this way. Because of sin, because of not just taking the apple from the tree, or excuse me, the fruit from the tree, but the movement away from God, things had to change. And this will become really important when we circle back to Cain and Abel's story later. God refused to let sin be the end of Adam and Eve's story. He refused to let sin crush them. And so he had to send them out from this perfect harmony. And the sin that they experienced trickles down into the next generation. And I want you to think before we step into this next section, what's something that's trickled down? from a generation prior in your own family. I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus here. I'm just saying, reflect in your own time. What's something that has happened before you even came on the scene and you still experience the effects of that in your life? I had a a grandmother who's since gone home to be with the Lord and she was a sweet, wonderful woman, but she grew up uh, in an adopted household. She was Uh, a foster kid and kind of was, you know, over here for a while, then over here for a while, over here for a while. Finally, she landed with a permanent adoptive family. And much, much later in life, when I was telling her about uh, the woman that I was going to marry, my wife, Jill, uh, I said, Grandmommy, like, what's, what's your advice about getting married? And she said, honey, whatever you do, don't ever get into a fight. And I thought to myself, like, I I, know, (laughs) I don't know that that's possible. But it was telling because in her own background, in her own origin story, there was a lot of fighting. There were a lot of things that drove her inward. There were a lot of things that hurt her from an early age. And so her advice to me reflected that. What might that be in your own family story? 
I have a friend whose father is an alcoholic. And because of that, my friend will not touch alcohol. He's seen what it did to his dad. He doesn't want that to happen to him. You've got a story like that too. There's someone that you know, someone that you love. It might be alcoholism. It might be abuse. It might be neglect. It might be gambling. Who knows? But the, the sins that have happened before us that, that honestly we, we don't really bear responsibility for in a way, they have this way of kind of sneaking in and dripping into our lives. And it's painful. But it's a real thing. So the backstory of Cain and Abel is this kind of mess of sin. And now we're moving into this coaching conversation. We meet Cain and Abel in our text today in Genesis chapter 4. And there's this kind of funny like cocktail party introduction at the beginning. Remember cocktail parties? You meet Cain and Abel, you learn their names, then you learn what they do. Like, hi, I'm so-and-so, I work in such and such. So Cain is a farmer and Abel's a rancher. They both work the land. They're both kind of blue collar guys from Eastern Washington. And their family system is that they are built together as this family and they have a relationship with God. Their worship of God is one of the first things we learn about them because they offer a sacrifice to God. And the text tells us this, this very simple but just kind of disturbing description. The Lord accepted Abel and his sacrifice, which was fruits and vegetables, and he did not accept Cain and his sacrifice. Sorry, I got that backwards. Abel's was the rancher, right? So it was the livestock. And Cain's was the fruits and vegetables. Now, I want to just pause here and say for a sec, the first reading of this is something that really trips up a lot of people outside of the church. And that is, this is totally unfair. Why would God look at one offering that is a good offering and say, actually, I like this one better. I'm going to reject that offering and you, and I'm going to accept this offering over here. If you went to middle school, you know about acceptance and rejection and how painful it is. And this feels painful. And so for many of our friends outside the church, they go, I don't want anything to do with a God that is that unfair. And as a result, they kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. They throw out the whole narrative of scripture. And to that critique of unfairness, I would say, yeah, it really seems that way. I don't think you're wrong on that first read, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Listen to the rest of the story because it's illustrative of this greater point that I'm trying to make here. The bigger context of God choosing Abel's sacrifice over Cain's is to surface something that Cain's not able to see. What if this conversation that God has with Cain is a coaching conversation? And if you're a manager, you probably know what I'm talking about. If you supervise people at work, I'm, I'm sure you've had some experience with this. But a coaching conversation, at least in my world, is when I work closely with someone and I see them doing super well, but there's this kind of one area of struggle in their work, or maybe they're falling behind on a goal, I really want to come beside them and help them see and name the problem and move toward a solution that they feel good about. I want to equip and empower the people I work with to name the work and own the work and define the problem because that solution is honestly going to be so much better than anything I try to kind of jab into their life and their work. So I think that's what God is doing here. I think he's coming beside Cain and saying, Cain, I need you to pay attention to this other thing. Yes, you know, the sacrifice piece, like I get why that's important to you, but you're missing the bigger point. I'm calling your attention over here. And we see this in verse 7b of the text, like the second part of verse 7. God says the problem to Cain. 
And Cain misses it, by the way. God says this to Cain, sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. What's God saying to Cain? Cain, you have a sin problem. There is a problem that is bigger than the problem we have right now with the sacrifice. The sacrifice is just meant to draw your attention over to the real problem. That's your heart, Cain. You won't give your heart to me. Your pride is getting in the way of this kind of relationship that I really want with you. Why else would God bring up the subject of sin in the midst of a conversation that Cain thinks is about sacrifice? He's directing his attention to where he needs to do the work. And unfortunately, this leads to tragedy because Cain's pride will not let him step into the solution. Cain won't listen. He takes Abel out to his turf. Remember, Cain worked the field. So it's almost like Cain comes to Abel and says, hey, come see where I work. I want to show you the place. I want to show you what I'm up to every day. In other translations, there's this violent word that comes up. It says Cain rose up against Abel, right? Like just picture that in your mind. He kind of comes at him with the full force of his being. And he kills him. And in that moment, in that battle of the greater battle against the the war against sin, this is a battle where sin is victorious. Cain won't listen to God. He won't lay aside his pride. That sin problem that God was talking to Cain about, here's where it takes root and gives birth to something awful. Now, on a positive note, this is one of the reasons that I love the Bible. Because the Bible, it's not all sunshine and roses. There's hard stuff. There's murder in the Bible. This is real life. This is not idyllic pictures of puffy clouds. These are real people having real struggles. In this family system, the pattern of pride, the pattern of sin has become so pronounced and so built up that it leads to the death of Abel. And what's interesting is Cain still doesn't get it. If you read verse 13, the amount of personal pronouns that Cain uses for himself is astounding. He, God comes to him and says, what's happened? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Great kind of poetic imagery about this terrible moment. And Cain says, this is unfair. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't understand. This is going to follow me for the rest of my life. Don't punish me. Me, me, me. I, I, I. And God says, come on, man, you still don't get it. But God will not let sin be the end of Cain's story. Far from it. Look at verse 15 with me. The second part of verse 15 is where we get the glimpse of Shalom. The Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. There's all kinds of debate out there about what the mark of Cain is. I'm not going to debate what it is. I'm going to talk about what it does. God is taking care of this murderer, Cain. He's taking care of him. He's extending his protection to him. Remember Cain's parents, Adam and Eve, God could have let the sin crush them and kill them. They're turning away from God. He could have just said, you know, forget it. We're going to start over. This ain't worth it. But because God is merciful, because he loves sinners like you and me, he looks at Cain like just like he looked at his mom and dad. I can kind of picture God taking a deep breath like, okay, here we go again. You can't stay here, Cain, but I will not let sin wipe you out. 
Do you need to hear that this morning, church? Are, are you carrying some guilt? Are you carrying some burdens for yourself, for someone in your family, for a pattern of sin, a chapter in your history you're not proud of? Hear this. God will not let sin wipe you out. He won't. And he gives Cain this mark, not to shame Cain, although I imagine there was some of that that was sort of played out in his life, but he protects Cain. Did you know that God has a heart? He has a soft spot for murderers. I mean, think about all the appalling things any of us could do with our lives. God has a heart for people who commit murder. He has a heart for Cain because he protects him. Later on, there's this prince that's raised in the household of Pharaoh named Moses. And he murders someone who's mistreating one of his own people. He kills the guy and he runs off in the desert and God uses him to lead the people of Israel to freedom. There's a young boy who's elevated to become the king, King David. And he's a phenomenal king. He's a phenomenal military and spiritual leader. And he kills a guy. He conspires to have Uriah murdered because he slept with Uriah's wife. And David, the murderer, receives God's grace. Much, much later on, there's a zealot, a terrorist named Saul, and he's an accomplice to countless murders, including the one from a man named Stephen, who literally had rocks thrown at him until he died. And he receives the mercy of God. God has a heart for murderers. God has a heart for people who are not perfect. Far from it. Paul writes, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is where we see Christ in the story. Cain doesn't give up the ghost and say, you know, I was wrong, God. I, I just, you're right. Now I got to do it your way. No, no, no. He's still mad. And God's given him this mark to protect him while we were yet sinners. It's happening here, church. And God is not dumb. He's not looking at Cain. He's not looking at these murderers and saying, you know, I just, I feel like doing this today. No, there's a strategy and a purpose here. And so how do we respond to this, this news of grace and mercy? Honestly, I think the appropriate response is in the text. In verses five and six, you see this word dejected. Why do you look dejected, Cain? The Hebrew there is, why is your face fallen? If you dig into it a little bit more, it's, it's the affect, the way that your face and your body show your own experience of failure. Think about the last time you failed. Did people around you pick up on it pretty quickly? I know that happens to me a lot. When I experience failure at work, when I experience failure in my personal life, like I show it. We all tell ourselves we have good poker faces, but we really don't. We really don't. The people who love you, the people who know you, they understand when you've failed because they see it. And so Cain is showing his failure after he has murdered his brother. And that word failure, that word, excuse me, dejected, it doesn't just mean to show that you failed. It also means to flatten yourself on the ground and lay prostrate in worship. It means to so humble yourself, to take so seriously the weight of what you have done, the failure that you've experienced, that you just lay it out there and you just say, Lord, I don't even deserve to stand up in your presence. So I think the invitation for us from the text in response to what we've heard today is this. We need to fall prostrate before our God. And maybe you can do that where you are at home. Maybe you can just do that in your heart. But we're going to do that together through a time of guided prayer and confession. 
So drawing from the resources of the ancient church fathers, I'm going to guide us through just a very brief kind of three-part reflection in prayer where we confess before our God, examining our conscience, where we attempt to really feel the sorrow and the weight of what we have done, where we receive God's forgiveness, and we form a determination to avoid the sin in the future. And then after this, we'll go to our breakout room. So I invite you, wherever you are, you can join me in prayer. You can turn off your video if you'd like to do that. And if you want to lay prostrate on the ground, you can. If you've never done that, if you've never knelt during prayer, I would invite you to kneel because just changing the posture of your body can really be transformative. And all you got to do for the next couple minutes is just be silent and receive these words. You don't got to say anything or type anything into the chat. But let's enter into this time of confession together, confident in our Lord's provision for our healing and our restoration. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the story of Cain and Abel. Thank you for how even in our rebellion, you still rescue us. Thank you that we desperately need shalom and you're our only provider. So Lord, before you now in this silence, we want to examine our conscience, examine the stuff that is in our hearts and our minds about the way we've treated others, the way that we've thought of ourselves, the way that we thought of you. Lord, through your Holy Spirit, kind of sift through the mess that is often our hearts. Lord, speak to us in these moments of silence as we lift up to you the things that we have left undone or the things that we have done, the burdens we have carried this week. We just want to name them before you now, just kind of put them out there. So hear us as we pray silently. 